You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again. This is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the July 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with Drs. Gregory McDermott and Jeffrey Sparks giving an overview of their paper entitled Demographic, Lifestyle, and Serologic Risk Factors for Rheumatoid Arthritis RA-Associated Bronchiectasis, Role of RA-Related Autoantibodies. And today I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Gregory McDermott, who's the lead author of the paper, and Dr. Jeffrey Sparks, who's senior author, who will discuss with me the risk factors for bronchiectasis in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Jeff, Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and to the audience. And so let us begin. So First question was an easy one. What led you to perform the study and how does it differ from previous studies in bronchiectasis in patients with the RA? Well, thanks so much for having us, Dr. Silverman. We're really glad to be here to share some of our work about RA bronchiectasis. Um, I guess to take a step back. So I'm a second year rheumatology fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I have always been interested in multi-system rheumatic diseases and understanding how and why autoimmune diseases can target multiple organs in addition to just the joints. Um, So since the beginning of fellowship, I've been really fortunate to work with Dr. Sparks, looking at rheumatoid arthritis associated lung diseases. And we've worked together on a couple projects related to rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. And in the course of that work, realized that I think that there's a pretty significant need to better understand bronchiectasis in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, Taking a step back, I just wanted to talk for one second about bronchiectasis in general, with the big caveat that I'm a rheumatology fellow and not a pulmonologist. But my understanding is that bronchiectasis occurs when there is dilation and distortion of the airways of the lungs. And this can lead to cough and mucus production, shortness of breath, uh, dysbiosis of the airways and recurrent infections. And we've known for decades really that there is an association between rheumatoid arthritis and bronchiectasis. Um, but research into this condition has actually been quite limited for a couple condition, uh, for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, there's significant heterogeneity in the way that bronchiectasis has been researched and also how it can present. It can be clinically apparent, and some studies have investigated that, where patients have both symptoms of bronchiectasis as well as uh, characteristic findings on radiology. But it can also be subclinical, and some Some studies have looked at uh, the prevalence of bronchiectasis in screening studies where CTs were done for for research purposes. Um, Another complication of research into bronchiectasis is the fact that it may occur in conjunction with other lung diseases. So obviously there are many overlapping symptoms. I I described shortness of breath, cough, sputum production. That can be seen in chronic bronchitis and COPD. And it can also overlap with interstitial lung disease where the lung disease itself, especially scarring or inflammation, fibrosis of the lung parenchyma can really pull the airways apart and and cause what's called traction bronchiectasis. And this is another mechanism um, where it can occur. 
but it can also occur on its own. And this is the phenomenon that we termed isolated rheumatoid arthritis bronchiectasis. And in this study, we really wanted to focus on that entity, these isolated bronchiectasis cases, where it's occurring in the absence of uh, underlying interstitial lung disease, not traction bronchiectasis, and try to determine what are some of the risk factors for developing that condition in particular. As far as we know, I believe we are the first study to really focus on, on that isolated bronchiectasis group in particular. And um, we wanted to investigate some of the risk factors for developing that condition. We um, focused specifically on rheumatoid arthritis associated autoantibodies. And we also wanted to investigate uh, body mass index and how that contributed because that's a known RA, having a high body mass index is a known risk factor for having interstitial lung disease in RA. I hope you enjoyed listening to Drs. McDermott and Sparks' overview of their paper, Demographic, Lifestyle, and Serologic Risk Factors for Rheumatoid Arthritis, RA-Associated Bronchiectasis, Role of RA-Related Autoantibodies, and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with them and read the full-length article, which is now available on our website at www.jroom.org. The next article to bring your attention to is entitled Mortality Rates in Patients with Ankylosing Spondylitis with and Without Extraarticular Manifestations and Comorbidities, a retrospective cohort study, and is by Kelty and colleagues. In this study, the authors examined 1,791 hospitalized patients with AS, as well as 8,955 matched control patients who'd been admitted to the hospital for other reasons, in order to determine the mortality rates of hospitalized patients with AS and the association of extra-articular manifestations and comorbidities with the mortality rates. The authors found that the crude mortality rate was significantly higher in AS patients as compared to controls with a hazard ratio of 1.85. The increased mortality rate was associated with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, smoking, lower respiratory tract infections, and extra-articular manifestation of AS. The two most common causes of death in the cohort were cancer and cardiovascular disease, which accounted for 26% and 22.5% of the deaths, respectively. Overall, the risk of death with, from cardiovascular disease, cancer, and infections were significantly higher in the AS group than the controls. The authors found that the presence of comorbidities, extra-articular manifestations, and smoking contributed to an increased risk of all-cause mortality in hospitalized AS patients as compared to controls. In the discussion, the authors discussed the implications of their findings for clinical practice. The next article to highlight is entitled Baseline Disease Activity Predicts Achievement of CDAPSA treatment targets with a last phase three results in DMARD naive patients with psoriatic arthritis and is by Mies and colleagues. 
The aim of this study was to examine the probability of achieving remission or low disease activity as measured by the Clinical Disease Activity Index for Psoriatic Arthritis, or CDAPSA, in patients with psoriatic arthritis who were treated with a premolast monotherapy. This is a post hoc analysis of a subgroup of the PALIS-4 study, which was a phase three multicenter randomized complete placebo-controlled study of DMARD naive patients with psoriatic arthritis who were treated with 30 milligrams BID of a premolas, which and they compared the baseline status to their status at week 52 using change in the CDAPSA. Overall, 138 patients had data on all study points and with a cohort for this analysis. At baseline, 66.3% of patients had high disease activity, 31.4% moderate disease activity, and 2% had low disease activity. Authors found that twice as many patients with moderate disease activity at baseline reached either remission or low disease activity at week 52 as compared to high disease activity. Longitudinal evaluation showed that patients who achieved their disease activity target had a lower mean CDAPSA at baseline and they had continuous improvement over time. Achieving the CDAPSA treatment target was associated with the reduction not only in articular disease, but also extra-articular disease, including skin, enthesitis, dactylitis, and functional disability. Please read this paper to determine which DMARD-naive patients with psoriatic arthritis may achieve the best benefit of treatment from a premolast. Next paper I'd like to bring your attention to examines treatment of interstitial pneumonitis in patients with inflammatory myositis. And it is entitled Tacrolimus in patients with interstitial pneumonia associated with polymyositis or dermatomyositis, interim report of postmarketing surveillance in Japan and is by Kuwana and colleagues. The authors examined 170 adult patients from 51 medical centers in Japan with either polymyositis, 27% of the cohort, or dermatomyositis, 73% of the cohort, who had interstitial pneumonia and were treated with tacrolimus. This is the two-year follow-up report of a prospective post-marketing surveillance study. Approximately 50% of the dermatomyositis patients had amyopathic DM. At the time of starting treatment with tacrolimus, 98.8% of patients were receiving corticosteroids, while an additional 25% were also on cyclophosphamide. 
The initial dose of tacrolimus was 0.0375 milligrams per kilo per dose BID with a target trough level of 5 to 10 nanograms per mil. 29% of the patients discontinued tacrolimus to the follow-up, which was mainly due to loss to follow-up, having moved or not come back for appointment. While 16 of 49 died, 12 stopped because of adverse events, and only three for lack of response. Of the 16 deaths, 12 died of interstitial pneumonia, all had amyopathic dermatomyositis, and two died of lung cancer. The mean oral prednisolone dose decreased from a mean of 32.5 milligrams per day at baseline to 13.6 at one year, and then to 7.6 milligrams per day at two years. The overall survival at two years was 90.3% and progression-free survival was 62.5%. Factors associated with all-cause mortality included a diagnosis of amyopathic dermatomyositis, a elevated serum ferritin level between 500 to 1500 nanograms per mil, and the presence of anti-melanoma differentiation-associated gene 5 antibodies. Please read this article to get further details on the patient's outcomes and the association with the outcomes. Also, it will allow you to determine if you think tacrolimus should be used in your patients with either poly or dermatomyositis who have interstitial pneumonia. The final article I'd like to highlight this month is entitled Gout and Hospital Admission for Ambulatory Care-Sensitive Conditions, Risks and Trajectories. In this article, Kildari and colleagues examined hospital admissions for patients with gout. The investigators examined the records of 576,669 patients of Skane, Sweden, who were aged between 35 to 85 years old, who had not had a doctor's diagnosis of gout from 1998 to 2005. Cohort was then followed from January the 1st of 2006 until either an admission for ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, death, they moved outside of the area, or at study end, which was December 31st, 2016. Overall, 2.8% of the individuals followed had diagnosed gout between 2006 and 2016. 
Patients diagnosed with gout were found to have a 41% increased rate of hospital-associated ambulatory care-sensitive conditions with a hazard ratio of 1.4 as compared to controls, which correspond to 1.21 more admissions per hundred for 10,000 patient years as compared to those without gout. When they examined the tra trajectories, the higher rates of these admissions were observed from three years before to three years after the diagnosis of gout with the highest prevalent ratio at three months after diagnosis. This rate was 1.5 times higher than the age match controls. When they examined tra trajectories, the, they found three different types. The first, which composed the largest group at 88.5%, there were almost no hospitalizations. Second, at 9.7, began low then rising. And the third was moderately to sharply rising at 1.8%. Multinominal logistic regression analysis suggested that male sex Older age, if you were born outside of Sweden, a higher comorbidity index, a history of diabetes, obesity, and chronic pulmonary disease, as well as a previous hospital admission, were associated with higher odds of membership in either class two, which was the low rising, or class three, the moderate to sharply rising trajectories. In the discussion, the authors addressed the implications of their findings to improve care of patients with gout. The image in rheumatology this month describes a previously well woman who presented with right eye swelling and a saddle nose deformity. Biopsies of the sinus and nasal bones showed concentric storiform fibrosis with lymphocytoplasmic infiltrate, which had strong staining for IgG4, which is diagnostic of IgG4 disease. These lesions resolved with treatment, but she was left with a saddle nose deformity. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Encourage you to read not only the highlighted article, but all the articles in the July 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in print or online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch my interviews with the author or authors of the highlighted articles, not only of this month, but of previous months if you missed them. They are also available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on the highlighted articles or any articles appeared in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. Please listen again next month for the August edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.